Welcome to The Saint Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. So tonight's speaker, I first came across through a friend who come on Alpha, Joe. Joe's actually here. And Joe'd come on Alpha, and actually we should say, Joe, your, your mum is watching at home, isn't she? Violet, so come on, come, come say hi to your mum, come on. Come on, come say quick hi. Say hi to your mum, come on. So, Joe, look down, look down camera number three. Here we, are you ready? Wait, wait, wait for it. Violet is watching at home right now. What do you want to say? I love you very much, Mom. Thank you for making me go to church. Here I am. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Joe. So Joe comes on Alpha and is in my group with Nye and some people who baptized tonight. And I said to Joe, oh, how did you come to be on Alpha tonight? And Joe said, I've got this friend, Joshua Luke Smith. And Joe works in the music industry. And she's like, oh, Josh, you know, he's a musician. He's a rapper. He's a poet. And he's the coolest guy I know. And it happens he's a Christian. He goes to church. And so he said to me, you really need to go to church. In fact, you really need to go to Saint and do Alpha. And that's the first time I met our speaker tonight, Joshua Luke Smith. And he is an incredible artist. He's an author. He's been featured in TED Talks, on BBC. He is a musician, poet, rapper, author, sort of everything, Renaissance man. In fact, he was at Renaissance this year, and it's a real joy to have Joshua with us tonight. And to give you a little flavor, um, he has a single coming out this week that I managed to steal the video to give you a flavor of the kind of music and the kind of work he does. So have a look at the screens, and this is a little taster of Joshua's work. Would you please put your hands together and welcome Joshua Luke Smith. Uh, so appreciate you going. Thanks, that's it. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's a it's a joy to be here. I've been hanging out with the same family all day, and I'm I'm loving it. There is a there is a desire and a, a tenacity for God's presence amongst you all. I've been at the 10 a 11 a.m. and then I was over to 5 p.m. and it's just been consistent through each service. And so I want to honor what you guys have been cultivating because I know you've been cultivating it. I know you start button, you turn on. It's something that you desire and long for. So I affirm that in you. And I wonder if you join me in just honoring and celebrating your leaders that have been leading the way and leading the charge in that of just dedicating themselves to God's presence and, and, and honoring him and all of that. I, uh, I'm not going to say too much about myself. I'm going to get one thing out of the way because every time I talk to anyone new, they always say, ask me what my accent is. And I don't think I have one, but just to clear the air and make sure you all aren't asking that question as I keep talking. I'm, I'm a missionary kid. I was born in Croydon, South London. And then uh, when I was like 18 months, my family moved to Pakistan where we lived. And uh, then I came back. And when I came back to London, it was the 1998 World Cup. And I know that because I remember on the playground not knowing who David Beckham was. And that was a problem and things I'm still working through now. Uh, and I moved to Canada, I married a Canadian, and so if you're picking up a twang, it's all of that in the room. I, I want to talk a simple message tonight. I don't have anything too extravagant to say. I want to just continue this meditation and this reflection on baptism which really is the pinnacle of the Christian faith. It's this moment where all comes together. And so I'm gonna speak from a passage that many of you have probably heard before, and uh, you can turn to it now if you have Bibles or get on your phones, it's Matthew 3. 
Before I read it, I will say this. For some of us, opening up the scriptures to a passage that we have heard before can invoke something that I like to call Sunday school syndrome. And it's something that I have suffered with throughout my life. What I mean by it is sometimes the stories in the scriptures are so familiar, we presume they have nothing new to say to us. And so at its worst, it provokes a sense of cynicism in us. And perhaps at its, you know, least threatening, it's indifference. But either way, it prevents our hearts from being open to receive something new. But this is live and active. It is a double-edged sword that pierces through bone and marrow, and it is always speaking. So let's pray before I read it, and I'm, I'm putting myself on the front line of receiving this prayer. Father, we acknowledge your presence in this room, for there is nowhere that you aren't. You are here. You are in all things. You hold all things together. In you, we live and we move and we have our being. Tonight, Lord, I pray the very simple words of the Apostle Paul. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened. May we see something we have never seen before. We have tasted and we have seen what the world has to offer. And we have come back wanting. We are homesick for a home we've never had. We're hungry for a feast we haven't tried. We have an internal, eternal appetite. And Lord, we're bringing that to the forefront tonight. We want to taste and see something new. We want to taste your presence. We want to see you in a way we've never seen you before. We want to see from the lens of our hearts tonight. I pray this in your name. Amen. I loved the uh, little sound effects going on when I was saying that as well. I was trying to hold myself together. All right, this is Matthew 3, and I'm going to read from verse 13. It goes like this. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him saying, I need to baptize you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered, saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus offers up a pretty convincing argument to be baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This, uh, this time together, these words I'm about to share, may they be, for those of us who have been baptized, may they be an assurance and a reminder of why we got baptized and what happened when we got baptized. And for those of you that haven't been baptized, may they be an invitation to come to the waters. May there be an invitation. We have, in, in the most part, lost our connection as a society to the process and the tradition of initiation. It still exists, but it wasn't something that I grew up with in my consciousness. It wasn't prevalent in my psyche. I didn't consider that a day was coming where I would be initiated into like the rest of my life, into the next chapter of my life. It still happens. There's a, there's a couple examples. I'll give you my favorite examples. There is a Brazilian tribe in the Amazon rainforest who have a tradition 
that when it's time for the young men in the tribe to become acknowledged as being men, the elders go into the forest. I don't know how they do this, but they harvest, they find bullet ants. Bullet ants are known for this ridiculously painful sting. They get these ants, these bullet ants, and they sedate them. And once sedated, they get the ants and they sew them into a glove with their pointers sticking outward. And then they gather the young men couple hours in, the ants have begun to wake up furious. And at that point, they stick the hands of the young men into the gloves. And the young men have to hold their hands in these gloves for 20 minutes at a time, enduring the ridiculous pain and suffering of being afflicted by these bull ants. And then they do it again and again and again over a period of a couple years. And once they've done that, and the elders have been bearing witness to their suffering, they announce them to be men and they welcome them into this next chapter of their life. Then another uh, initiation which we're more familiar with would be the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah for young Jewish boys and girls where they step over the threshold into adulthood and more importantly into being responsible for their own spirituality. They go through this process of rigorous dedication and study learning the Torah, revealing that to their community and at their bat mitzvah or their bar mitzvah they're welcomed in. You're now responsible for your faith, responsible to carry on the tradition, to steward it. In uh, the Pentecost Islands in the Pacific Ocean, there's a tradition where the men climb a 100-foot pole. I hate heights, so this is the worst one for me. They climb this wooden pole about 100 feet, and when they get to the top, they tie a vine around their ankles, and then they jump. And the idea is that they will fall and graze their shoulders against the land, the ground beneath them. It's like the precursor to the bungee jump, but they call it ground jumping because sometimes they just hit the ground. But those that survive are welcomed into this kind of heroic form of masculinity. So we've lost attachment to that kind of idea of like, hey, a day is coming where you're going to do this physical act or this process, and then you're going to be acknowledged by the rest of the tribe or the community that you have transcended into this new period of your life. But baptism is just that. That is what has taken place tonight. That is what we are invited to step into. And that is what happened even for Jesus. Wherein these different cultures are celebrating the moment a child becomes an adult, baptism is the moment a person is initiated into the life of the beloved. It's here that Jesus rises out of waters and the text says, immediately a voice resounds from heaven saying, behold, this is my son, my beloved son who I love and in whom I am well pleased, immediately, as if the voice of God is urgent in affirming this truth. There is an initiation and then there is an affirmation. The mystic, sage, activist, poet, he's a hero of mine, Thomas Merton said this, the entirety of the Christian spiritual life could be summarized by this sentiment receiving our identity as the beloved and doing everything we have in our power to hold onto it. The next verse says that Jesus was driven into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't know if anybody in the room has done that, but if you have, you know that you get hungry. So one of the most, if I dare say it, it's one of the most redundant verses in the New Testament, because it says, and he was hungry. <laughs> But the reality is the body has gone through a different, you know, a process of being hungry and then being in this kind of euphoric state of this fasted mode. The intermittent fasters in the room are like, yes, I know. 
But then, this, then, then the body literally just begins dying and begins starving, wasting away. And Jesus is at that point at his most vulnerable, at his weakest, at his most fragile. And I'm speaking to you, transcendent of whether you've done a fast or not. At your most fragile, at your weakest, at your most feeble, a voice comes to him, the voice of the adversary. And the voice says this, if you are the son of God. The voice calls into question the voice that he had just heard by the river Jordan that affirmed, this is my beloved son who I love. The first thing that the adversary, the tempter questions is the voice that has affirmed Jesus in the waters of baptism. Jesus doesn't succumb to it because what the voice asks of him is this, if you are the son of God, then do this, turn the stone into a bread. If you are the son, turn stone into a bread. There's a reason Jesus doesn't succumb to the voice. The first is he knows the scriptures and he says, well, man cannot live off bread alone. But it's deeper than that. The reason Jesus doesn't succumb to the voice is he knows that if he was to act, if he was to do something, he would be forsaking an identity that was entirely rooted in who the father said he was. The voice has defined me effectively, Jesus says. The voice of my father has defined me. As the Franciscan Brennan Manning says, every other self is an illusion. I have that on a print in my house. Define yourself as one radically loved by God. Every other self is an illusion. Whether you've been baptized or not, you have heard the voice of the adversary. You've heard the voice that has told you over and over and over again, you are what you do, or you are what you have done. My, my work takes me into these like mad environments, very diverse environments. There was one week last year where I was in a prison one day of the week, and I was doing a poetry workshop for men that were doing like at least a life sentence. So most of them were never coming out. If they were, they were coming out at the end of their life but the majority weren't coming out ever. And we were doing this workshop where I was introducing them to the art of poetry as a means of telling their story and connecting with their emotions. And a couple of days later, I was sharing some poems at a conference and it was one of those environments where every step I took in, I was like, why am I here? What am I doing here? It was for business owners and politicians. And I remember rocking up in these dark mines that I just bought from the crisis charity shop and the soul was so disintegrated on them that every step I took, a bit of the soul fell away as I walked. I was wearing a pair of jeans that I loved. I'm actually wearing them right now. And they had a massive gaping hole in the crotch, but I've had that stitched up since then. And I remember walking through that being like, I shouldn't be here, I don't know why I'm here. But I was invited to share some poems. And uh, the few days after, I, I was chatting with my wife and I said to her, both rooms had the same anxious presence about them. In both environments, that of men that have committed the most heinous crimes in an environment of men and women that are known purely for their achievements, there was the same anxious energy of those who have defined themselves by what they have done. The, the, the former have defined themselves by these crimes that they live in the shadow of shame of the, these crimes that they feel guilty of, the, the feeling of remorse and regret 
living every single day just in questioning who you are because of what you have done. But then the others live every day defined by the achievements and accolades and digits in their bank account. But the energy was exactly the same. And I, have, I am not any different. We live in these anxious bodies that have been defined by what you have done. Or perhaps we can even say what you haven't done. And I know that I am summarizing with great naivety all the work of sociology and anthropology when I say this, but I believe it to be true. You have a decision to make whether you live as one radically loved by God or the other option is you live defined by what you have done and what you do. And we can go back and forth and rebuttal it, but I would suggest that by the end of our lives, that would be how we defined it. What did you do with your life? What have you done each day? My first like visceral memory of this is being at school. I was in like year eight and I just started rapping. I'd fall in love with hip hop and I was writing my own bars and I'm sure they were absolutely terrible, but they were impressing my uh, like friends of school who had no kind of literacy with hip hop whatsoever. They, they thought I was good probably because they had never heard anybody else rap. And I was just rapping all the time, writing bars all of the time. So I started getting a bit of a reputation that I rapped. And I liked that reputation. In fact, I felt like I'm probably the best person in the school at this. And I carried it and I held on to it. And I remember where there was this opportunity to do a, a, like a, a talent show at a school. A school of about a thousand people. And we had this big gymnasium and about half of the school turned up. And I wasn't nervous which is the first sign that you're prideful. <laughs> I wasn't nervous, I was just ready to kill it. In fact, I knew that I was gonna kill it. And I knew that it was gonna be the day I like compounded the identity that I had as the guy who rapped. And I knew that from that day when I walked through the hallways of that school, I would get more acknowledgement for my skill and what I did. And so I sat at the back of that gymnasium as people got up and performed their you know, contributions to the talent show in my mind is thinking, I'm about to get up there and put you all in my shadow. This is year eight pride. And I get up there and I had this beat and I'd written these bars for this beat. And I get up looking at them like I'm looking at all of you now. And the beat starts playing, but the words don't come. The words, they, they, they evaporate. And now the beat's playing, so even if the words did come, I wouldn't know where to bring them in. And they're looking at me and there's a moment where people will look at you and they don't know that you don't know. They, they don't know that you don't know your words. They're like, oh, he's just waiting a few bars to come in. But as time goes on, it becomes more obvious that you, you've forgotten. I, think, think of 8 Mile, first scene of 8 Mile. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I walked off that stage and I walked straight home. I didn't go back to school. I walked straight home. And, and, I, and, I'm not even, I'm not and I cried the whole way home. I, was, I remember lying in bed. I can remember the red hoodie that I was wearing. I remember crying in bed thinking, I am never going back to school. But it was, it was more existential than that. It was like the first feeling of I don't know who I am. That's who I am. And my, my life plan was to base myself upon people's acknowledgement of that gift. And now I've bombed who am I? Oh, this is only a few years ago. I'm on stage, I'm, I'm going on tour with a band and they're playing like the O2 academies around the country and I go and support them and I was just sharing poems. So they're a band, but I went up on stage and, uh, and I walk out on stage and I've got like seconds to bring this crowd of like 2,000 people to my attention with nothing but my voice. And so I go out on stage and I'm 
dropping these poems and the tour's going well and we play Birmingham this night and it goes really well. And the next day we drive up to Newcastle and I'm about to go on stage in Newcastle. We're in Newcastle. And I walk out on stage in Newcastle and I say, what's up Birmingham? And there's 2,000 Geordies just looking at me. And I go straight back to stand in the shoes of a 14-year-old in a red hoodie, crushed. And I'm looking out at a sea of people with this identity glaring once again of I am what I do or I am what I've done. And I don't want to presume anything of you, but I'm just going to suggest that you've had that experience at some point or another in your life. But the beloved identity strips us all the way back to the core of who we are. The voice that speaks over Jesus as baptism is the same voice that speaks over you and I every single millisecond of every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month of our life. God isn't just, God doesn't just love you as a theological idea. God is loving you right now. A few things have changed between the talent show and that stage that I'd been on, that I went on in, in Newcastle. And what had shifted for me wasn't a, a security that I felt every second of the day, but it was a reassurance of the voice. I learned this very simple prayer. Some of you might know it. Brennan Manning, once again, the Franciscan priest who his entire life was an alcoholic, who suffered each day with incredible temptations and guilt but held on to this message of grace developed this very simple prayer it's seven syllables and it's simply this on the inhale we say Abba, Abba. and on the exhale we say I belong to you in Romans 8 the apostle Paul writes we have been we have not been given the spirit of fear that leads us back into slavery if you feel enslaved it is a spirit of fear, but we have been given the spirit of adoption that cries forth, Abba, Father. Every morning I get my son out of bed and he wakes up too early. So I keep the lights off and I lie down and I put him on my chest for like another 45 minutes. And every morning he lies on my chest and before he falls back asleep, he says, He's like, he's like 14 months. Joe is his godmother. He says, And if you were to hear a child in Aramaic or Hebrew do just that, they would say, Abba, 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 Abba. It's with intentionality that the Apostle Paul evokes this uncomfortably familiar and intimate language. It is meant to provoke you. Abba. Because until we know the voice of God, like the voice of a father, that I'm aware many of us in the room have never actually experienced in the physical, until we've approached God and received from God in that way, we will always be in question of, we'll always question our identity. My daughter's three years old. This morning after church here, she ran up to me going, daddy, 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 look what I made, look what I made. And she shows me the thing that she made in Sunday school, which I can only describe as being a piece of abstract art. And, uh, daddy, daddy, daddy. and so of course I look at her and I'll film it and I say it's beautiful and I'm going to put it on the fridge against all of her other abstract art. But every morning when she wakes up, this is what she hears. 
Welcome to every morning of her entire three-year-old life, she's heard this. Welcome to another day of being loved, of being enough, of being everything that I've been dreaming of. Yeah, it's true. Welcome to another day of being you. And I'm not telling you that to try and win points as like the best dad ever, because I say that every morning over her to remind myself of it as well. You wake up in the morning and there's a voice that says, welcome to another day of being loved, of being enough, of being everything that I've been dreaming of. Yeah, it's true. Welcome to another day of being you. Everything that you do today is a footnote to your identity of being one beloved by God. Every other self is an illusion. So I'll end with, with a story that some of you might be listening to this being like, man, this is all lofty spiritual language. Like, how does this change your Tuesday afternoon or your Friday morning? This is emotionalism, Josh. Like, how does this present itself in times where, like, push comes to shove, where it gets real? On the 4th of October last year, my friend Jermaine got the call that no parent, the, the nightmare call. He's driving home from work, and he gets a call saying, Keelan, Keelan, his son, has been stabbed. I spoke to Jermaine this week and he didn't just give me permission to share this story, he blessed me to share this story with you all. So I do so with a sense of reverence and like I'm standing on holy ground as I tell you it. Because he was driving home that day and for some reason he took a different route. And that route took him past the scene where ambulances were gathering and police were cornering off the area. And what he found at the scene was his oldest son lying on the floor. He'd gone in to buy a pizza he stepped out of the pizza shop to say hello to a friend that was passing by, and then he was mercilessly attacked. And his son died in his arms that day on October the 4th. The next day, I went down to be with him and his family and stand with him at the vigil, and I'll never forget that day. And his voice and everything about that day will live with me forever. But a week or two after, and Joe came with me. Joe's getting a lot of shout-outs tonight. Um, a few of us gathered around poets. Jermaine is a poet, and we gathered around to, to pray, to offer poems that served a space where there are no words, to honor the life of his son, and to lament. And this evening, you know, came and went, and it was powerful, and it was heavy, and it was painful, and everything you can imagine. And at the end, of the service, Jermaine ascended the stage and none of us had expected him to speak. And he took the mic and the first thing he said was this, tonight, I want to talk to you all about the love of the Father. And so I offer these two stories to those of you who are sitting in the chairs right now, like I have done so many times, with the question in my heart of, how can I dare believe any of this is true? How can I trust this God? How can I trust everything you're saying? He said, I just want to tell you two stories about my boy who only days before had been taken from him in the most violent manner. He said, there was a day I brought a family heirloom home and I said to my son, who was only a child at the time, I said, don't play with this because it's precious to daddy. And I put it up on the mental side. I don't know if you have that. I, I sent in a picture of Jermaine and Keelan. You could put it up if you want. And he said, don't play with this. But only a few moments after I left that room, 
He said, I heard the sound of shattering, the sound of breaking. And so with rage and wrath running through me, I walked back into the room only to see my boy Keelan on the floor with blood in his hands, having been cut from this ceramic thing breaking. And he said, I just picked him up and I took him straight to the hospital where we got stitches and I held him in my arms. And as we returned home and walked back into that room and I saw all the shattered, ed shattered edges of this heirloom, he said, I smiled to myself because I remembered what I had felt before I saw my boy bleeding and how all the anger dissipated as soon as I saw he was in pain. And my simple offering to you tonight is the God we're talking about, his posture towards you is not anger or wrath, despite what you have done, despite what you have broken, despite the manners and way in, in, in how you feel broken, his posture towards you is, a, is that of a father who wants to scoop you into his arms and make you whole again and heal you again. And then the other story is taking Keelan to the park and Keelan climbing up on the climbing frame and jumping off the climbing frame into Jermaine's arms. And then doing it again and again and again as children always do till Jermaine got tired and he said to Keelan, daddy's arms are growing so tired. This is the last time that you jump now. So Keelan climbed up and he jumped and Jermaine caught him and put him down on the ground and said, that was it, I can't do it anymore. But doing what young boys do, Keelan climbed back up that frame Jermaine turned his back and Keelan jumped into the air. Jermaine, by the grace of God, saw him out of the corner of his eye, so he turned around and caught his free-falling son in the air. And Keelan wrapped his little arms around Jermaine's neck. And Jermaine said, why did you jump? Daddy told you my arms were tired. I told you I couldn't catch you anymore. And he said, Keelan replied, but Daddy, I knew that you would catch me. And that, my friends, is the great gospel announcement. Jesus time and time again says, Oh, you who are imperfect, look how you love. How much greater is the love of the Father who is perfect, who loves you without reservation, who loves you when your intellect denies it and your emotions refuse it, who loves you as you are and not as you should be. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is to invite us in to this incredible experience of adoption. And those waters, those waters, what happened tonight is where we as the tribe gather around and bear witness and remind ourselves as well of the voice that resounds from the skies saying, behold, this is my son and this is my daughter who I love, in whom I'm well pleased and upon whom my favor rests. So I'm going to end by just praying over you all and praying over myself selfishly to receive that voice again. Whether you're hearing it for the first time or you've heard it so many times and you just feel indifferent, we're going to pray. Father, some of us have forgotten and some of us have never heard that voice before. Tonight, Father, in, in, in desperation, in desire to be free from the cycles of validation that we seek, 
of the cycles of anxieties that we want to run away from. Desperate to be free, we come before you. And we open our hearts and our ears to your voice. And we receive the truth that we are your beloved children. Father, whether it begins as an encounter that we cannot explain, or whether it begins as an act of faith in defiance of an intellectualism that denies it and an emotionalism that refuses it, we receive it that we are your children and that we are your beloved. And we allow every other self to fall to the floor tonight as an illusion. I pray for each of you in your hearts and in your minds to hear the voice of God saying to you, this is my child. Just put your name there. This is my child who I love, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased before they have done anything impressive and upon whom my favor rests. Lord, may we learn in these coming days and may we practice in these coming days calling you Abba, calling you Father, and may it do such a holy work of healing and redemption within us that our lives will never be the same, that it will break generational patterns, that it would bring healing to our children's children's children because we chose to receive the truth of who we are and whose we are. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.